Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 258 with my guest, Jerry Stahl. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. There's all kinds of things you can do there. You can fill out surveys, which might get read on the podcast. Uh, you can uh, check out the forum. You can post there. Um, you can support the show financially. You can read uh, blogs and guest blogs, uh, all kinds of stuff. So please, uh, oh, you can also buy uh, coffee mugs and uh, T-shirts with the Mental Illness Happy Hour logo on it. Uh, before we get to the interview with Jerry, I just want to share something that our former guest, Susanna Brisk, uh uh, tweeted, uh, I just thought it was a great year-end wrap-up for 2015. She said, I don't want to brag, but I didn't kill myself this year. I fear that I'm inadequate. I fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job Mental illness is convincing myself I'm so alone. why Hypervigilance. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. Then you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house. And you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. <laughs> I'm here with Jerry Stahl, who uh, 
many of you probably know as the author of the book uh, Permanent Midnight, uh, which which starred uh, Ben Stiller. And it was about, um, among other things, his uh, his battle with heroin addiction while writing for the the sitcom Alf. Um, you've also uh, written other screenplays. You've written for CSI. You've uh, you've written and and known yeah, for, and yeah. known for taking on tough subjects on uh, on CSI. Um, well, tough is one word. Bizarre and outre and grotesque is another couple yeah. of words. Uh, where would be a good place to to start? Because uh, you know we don't really talk about uh, show business that much, unless That's it's in, totally fine with me. Unless it's in an emotional uh, kind of context, um, where where would be a good place to start with your story? Where where are you from? I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Not Steelers fan. Not anymore. Never was really that jock guy. You know, yeah. was kind of an outsider. Like the Pirates when I was a kid. Ever go to Chicken on the Hill after Willie Stargell hit a home run? I think I was gone by the time Willie was there. Okay. Uh, let's see. I left when I, I was 16. I think he 16. gave up free chicken after he would hit a home yes, run. Yes, I believe he did, yeah. though I, I do know the Hill very well. I don't know if it's still there. It was the equivalent of Harlem in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, so what was what was home life like in, uh, in home Pittsburgh? Home life was uh, a little disturbing, to say the least. Um, just give you the capsule version which is the only one that won't leave us all weeping. Uh, <laughs> my father was uh, came, you know, an immigrant guy. He came over when he was 10 on a boat from Lithuania. And his mother had left him when he was two because she married a cousin who wouldn't pay for him to come over. Very Dickensian. So he came over by himself when he was 10. Worked his way up from coal miner to become uh, ultimately like Attorney General of Pennsylvania, then a federal judge in the Third Circuit. Uh, you know, he always very civil rights guy, you know, was on TV a lot. So I had that burden. And, but, you know, at home, he would like bang his head off the wall in these rages against fights with my mother. So we never fixed the holes in the wall. He would so, bang his head against yes, the wall? Yes. Yeah. As opposed Did, to mine. So you got to give him that. Yeah. Uh, but we never fixed them. So the house was like a museum of dad rage. Like, oh, I remember that in the bathroom. That was like Thanksgiving, like uh, 50, 59. That was a good one, you wow. know. And uh, so that happened. And then... Uh, my and then he killed himself when uh, when I was sixteen. He went in and did the. Uh, now that I've gotten my sweater, I'm I'm under the lights and I'm hot. <laughs> um, he uh, did the carbon monoxide thing when he was about, when, when I was sixteen. He was forty nine. And my mother, God bless her, very what they would call brassy nowadays. I think one of the classic women who uh, got an education and became a homemaker and had way too many brains. So. We used to think, uh, like, oh, she's on vacation. Turned out she was in Western Psychiatric getting electroshock. So there was that. She was a very... Uh, and was this even before your dad killed himself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just her thing. You know, she just had, she had problems. I mean, you know, they're both gone now. But, How could you uh, not be a little crazy being a woman in the 50s or the Yeah, 60s? there is that. I remember on the shelf in the bathroom, they had the mill towns, which were like probably... Don't even. It was like the early precursor to Valiums, and uh, you know, my sister. We used to have these crazy fights now. So my sister was six years older. Used to do this thing with her head, where she would like driddle her hair and like play with it and play with it and play with it. So she'd get like poor thing, we like bald patches. So I'm this kid, you know, out playing football or something in the street, and get called into this screaming fucking maelstrom, and uh, you know, with the fights and the head banging and the sort of partially bald sister and. Uh, you know, screaming mother. My father didn't fight back. He would just bang his head off the wall. So, so there was that. So what I learned at an early age 
was that there's there's two lives. It's like the the secret shameful life at home that you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. There's what happens when you mm-hmm. walk out the door, which was was like gladiator school for being an addict or an alcoholic. I was just really. going to say what it's perfect. perfect. Yeah, perfect training for. Oh an no, addict. I'm so lucky to have had that, <laughs> to have had that early training. <laughs> you just can't buy that. You know, you can't take a course online. Uh, so there was that, and that was, uh, that happened, uh, I was shipped off, to, you know, it was a very, pretty like, uh, you know, it wasn't a, it was like a lower class, kind. all my friends, like their fathers worked in like bread factories or the mill or breweries and breweries, and my father wore a white shirt to work, you know, he took a bus, and plus we were the only Jews, so throw that in the mix, this was like Italian, Slovak, Irish. So uh, I'd be routine, routinely kind of like beat up for killing Jesus, you know, on the way home from school, which I clearly didn't a blackout because I, you know, I don't remember <laughs> attacking the man. You contributed uh, it to it, Jerry. Trust me. I'm you sure I did. And I, and I bear that guilt. What, uh, what, what so is, that's that's my childhood. What does it feel like being the only Jewish kid in in a tough neighborhood? I, I can't imagine how... Are you just as you're walking around? Are you just waiting for the epithets to? Well, it's always there, even if it's unspoken. You're like, if you know, you can hang, but there's always that thing, and you'd hear people, you know, make remarks about it because they always say, like, you know, Pennsylvania is basically outside of Philadelphia. It's like Mississippi. You know, my sister had a had a black boyfriend when she was in high school for two minutes, and I mean, you would have thought. You know, it was just really fucking brutal, the recriminations. And I got shipped away. You know, like I say, it was a pretty poor neighborhood. I got shipped away to a very upscale prep school after all, you know, this stuff happened with my father. And uh, I'd never even seen a stereo. So suddenly I'm with like the uh, spawn of like, you know, the bunker hunt. And I think Oliver Stone went there early. You know, very rich, 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 rich kids went there. And so I didn't fit in there either. So uh, I got shipped away to a... uh, a summer camp, you know, to catch up on my algebra. And the only people who were there were the real fuck ups. And uh, I remember them saying, So have you done acid? <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, of course, a million times, you know, can't get nuts. So, you know, I started doing drugs at that age. I, I, but only, lying, saying that you, yeah, you saying had that, done, yeah. Well, I'd gotten high once my sister, uh, God bless her, when I was, she was in Berkeley, which, you know, was Ho 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 Chi Minh in the 60s. And uh, so I had done mescaline once before I was ever even drunk when I was 14. Like, you know, seeing, what an interesting way to well, kick off your yeah, drug habit. Yeah, like seeing screaming buses coming out of the sky and like, will this affect my grades? You know, <laughs> that's the hard ass I was yeah. as a as a youngster. Uh, so, yeah, so I just got in with all the, you know, I, I learned how to do acid and mescaline like every day of my senior year of high school while wearing a blazer, blue blazer and like a tie and going to chapel even though I was Jewish, you know, with like the melting stained glass of St. Paul, you know. So it was a crazy-ass fucking childhood. But, you know, if you look deep enough, I'm sure you scratch the surface, everybody's is. Mine was more overtly. Yeah. But you know what Hemingway said, you know, the greatest gift for a writer is an unhappy childhood. So I will, you know, how lucky I was. You know? <laughs> uh, what, what would be the next phase of your story your life your 
your pain, sure. your yeah, well, self exploration. You know, any, yeah. any seminal. Give me any any seminal moments from childhood or adolescence that kind of stand out that you haven't shared yet, or have, have we gotten all the big ones? Well, I, I think you know my father's suicide was interesting because you know I, I got flown back with the chief judge of his court, who was this uh, this very elegant African American fellow who had been the. Uh, and I say that because he was just a very, you know, just an old school. Again, he'd been like the governor of the Virgin Islands. Now he was a chief justice. Didn't talk the whole way. And it turned out that my dog, like my father, went into the uh, garage, I guess, turned on the, the car. And the dog had somehow scribbled in after him. So my dog committed suicide, apparently, you know. And I never cried for my father, but I just like hysterically sad and weepy about this little innocent puppy. You know, if that makes any sense. It makes then complete all, then sense Then all the guilt me. over that. And I, I, I kind of lived at home briefly for one summer with uh, seminal moments or less like, you know, with the funeral, my mother screaming, oh, it should have been me. He wishes it was me and flinging herself on the casket. And just a summer of this poor woman like falling. I had to carry like smelling salts in my uh, pocket at all times if I was ever with her. Just just the, I was sort of a punchline to her jokes growing up anyway. You know, she's a very witty woman, but I was the material, uh, as was my poor sister. And uh, Were they were they mean-spirited, the jokes? You know, it's hard to say. They, it was just, she used to call me misery guts. Mean-spirited, accurate, I don't know, you know, but it, it was one of those things where you call over the neighbor ladies to look at my weird haircut, you know. Uh, so, you know, having, ha have, having ever... had a couple of kids, sorry to interrupt. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, once you have children, I don't know if you, if you I have don't, children, well, there's this thing that happens when, when they're a certain age, you recall what you were at that age. You think, I can't believe they did this to this, like, you know, like, like a two, three year old kid, you know? So yes, there were some moments, uh. You know, we had issues by we, I mean me, my mother and I, you know, I was one of those kids who like could never keep his underpants clean when I was a little boy. So like two or three, her threat would be, I'm going to hang them on the line, you know, the stains for all your friends to see. And that was like this looming threat where I was like squeezing my sphincter. So I wouldn't shit for like, you know, epochs, you know, and then she would take out this thing that looked like, uh, like Harpo's horn, you know, one of these like turkey basters. And just, you know, put the hot soapy water up there. So I guess that uh, seminal's kind of a creepy word. There was no semen involved or semen, but uh, it went, you know, that was brutal. And so my childhood was sort of plagued with, you know, it's for constipation. Oh, okay. And or fun. I mean, yeah. who's to say? <laughs> but again, you know, I say this, I'm sure wherever the hell she is looking down and like mortified, you know, like, you know, you people always say, well, they did the best they could. I mean, but she was... You know, she had problems. And she had a lot on her plate. She <laughs> and the plate was cracked. Yeah, <laughs> so that's that. If you're comfortable talking about your, your you know, your look, dad's, I have no secrets, man. Okay. You know, your your dad's suicide. My dad also uh, tried to take his life when I was thirty. I think it was ninety four. I was thirty. Or, 89, 90, I, I don't even remember the, the fucking years. Kind the of analogies are brutal. Yeah, yeah I'm with um, you. Ninety three is is when it was, but um. I, I didn't, I just remember feeling nothing. I just remember feeling numb and yeah. not really surprised yeah. that he had 
done it because he had such a secret internal life. I mean, clearly mm. your father's life was so much more external with the head banging against the wall. But well, I think- once in a while, you know, he, he wasn't fully nonstop head banging. Okay. He wasn't Metallica. But, you know, when there were fights, that would happen. Yes. The rest of the time he was quiet. Yeah. What about were you close with your father? Were you as close as you could get with somebody who's not interested in you? Ah, you know. Um, so you're becoming this comic, and you're having a little bit of success, and he has yeah, no, yeah. he has no, nothing you do impresses dad. Um, until I got on TV, um, <laughs> and then yeah. I think he thought like, oh, maybe my son's safe, and it's it's son's safe, safe. Like oh, he's that's interesting. Like he's he's going to be he's okay. In the clear. Yeah. Yes, he's in the clear. You know, I was going to be a, a a doctor. I was studying to mm-hmm. to was getting ready to apply to medical school, wow. and I changed my major. Um, to theater because I wanted to try my hand in stand-up comedy. They had a competition on, on campus, Indiana University, mm-hmm. and fell in love with acting and was like, I don't, I, I don't want to be a doctor. I want to do something fun. And my parents had always told me, do something you love and the money will follow. And so I took that's, them up on it. It's pretty enlightened. It's very enlightened. Very enlightened. And wow. um, good. Good for them. And so my mom was very, very um, supportive. And my dad was, as he was, on paper, he was supportive. But I could see he yeah. was so worried about me. And he, you know, sure. he said to me one time, Paul, I'm, it takes such thick skin. And you just, you don't have it. You don't have thick skin. Wow. And um, I remember probably the first two years, out of just out of spite, working really hard to it's funny how that to, works. To try to yeah. to try to get better, but yeah. going back to the the, the feeling numb, um, it was when you don't have these moments created with a parent. Um, like the only joy I ever saw him express one time was was when I had pitched a good game in Little League and we beat an undefeated team. Literally, that was the day. That was the only time I've seen him express he was so proud. joy, yeah. and so. Um, there, there was just never this sense that yeah. this guy sees me. So when he, when he tried to kill himself, it was like there was, I was sad f- that he was in pain, yeah. but a little part of me was like, I totally understand why this guy yeah. wants out. He can't even yeah. connect to the people around him. Yeah. What do you remember thinking and feeling when I, you, I when know you exactly got the news? what I thought, and I was very guilty about this for years. What I felt was relief almost like he did this for me because he was a very publicly and, and in real life he was a good he did a lot for people he was like you know head of these Lyndon Johnson did this civil rights thing that he was head of and you know he was very very active sort of for the little guy you know in Democrat Paul Democratic you know he was the assistant mayor he never ran for anything but he was always very liberal and such but I remember thinking in a part of me you know because time was like the hippie time and I remember that I had heard that he was still telling his students he also taught law school like to wear a suit and tie jacket and tie you know and uh, I remember and my sister married a hippie and kind of broke his heart thinking that you know maybe he He was a liberal but it broke his heart that she married a hippie well because there there was sort of that old school thing of you want your daughter to be taken care of you know and she married somebody he didn't approve of first generation uh, uh, very you know liberal. Yeah. is it i guess he's first when you come over when you're 10 am i the first generation or is he the first generation i don't know uh, how does that work i i guess what i meant to say was he was yeah he, he was, was a really old school he was liberal. A classic old school and uh so i i think for me i thought ah uh, 
you know, because I wanted to do drugs. I wanted to like rock and roll and, you know, reading all this like, you know, I remember sending away for all these like literary magazines and the beats and stuff and getting this stuff and reading it. And I, I remember reading pubic hair as public hair, you know, because I just had no idea what I was reading. But I was always attracted to like, you know, Lenny Bruce and William Burroughs, even at like a ridiculous age, like 15 and 14. And uh, so I thought, now I can do this. Now I have an excuse to feel the way I already feel, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah. I'm that guy. I'm the like kid of that guy, you know, the suicide guy. Uh, and then, you know, they hushed it up and, you know, referred to it as the accident. You know, we didn't get any insurance money or anything because it was clearly what it was. Uh, so relief is what I felt, guilty relief. Yeah, almost as if my life is now more honest in a way my life is more on the surface it's it's yeah i don't have to worry about disappointing him essentially and i don't have to aspire to this thing now i could just sort of be out there and you know i always wanted to be a musician but i sucked oh i see so it was more relief for your trajectory than relief that he's not in pain anymore no i wasn't that enlightened i didn't know what he was you know where the last letter i got for him wasn't even a letter you know i was already living away from home and he he sent me like a check for 30 or 40 dollars with like you know a blank piece of paper around it which just kind of haunted me you know and, and the older i get the more mysterious it all is you know like i understand his pain and there were other circumstances i think he was just completely alone married to this kind of hysterical woman and his kids it sort of couldn't really relate because he had such a brutal tight scars all over his arms all he ever said about the old country was he lived in some town somewhere, and he said, we were the only family who didn't have a cow. I mean, that was like, I mean that's, that's harsh. <laughs> and I don't even know who took care of him. I mean, it was all a mystery, you know. Wow. Yeah, eight years on his own before being sent for by the mom who had to slave away in a little town supermarket to send for him, for the father who didn't want him, you know, stepfather. Wow, it's like a it's like a, a epic seventies movie by uh Yeah it is. Yeah. Uh, who's the guy Michael Cimino. Yes, yes, if only. Well we paid twenty thousand dollars for each tree in the background. Uh yeah. By yeah. the way, have you seen uh ever seen Heaven's Gate? Of course I've seen Heaven's Gate. That's the where first, they paid for the trees, yeah. Uh the first half of that movie is remarkable remarkable absolutely and then you can more. tell where the studio took it away from him and it's just yeah slapped together as as happens yeah yeah but then he did that other great movie with mickey rourke set in chinatown where mickey rourke was a detective and me being an older guy i have no memory so i can't tell you the title but uh i think i know the couple. one that you're talking about yeah. i did a uh at one point in my insane journalistic career i uh i did a playboy interview with mickey rourke where i had to go like when he was on angel heart and like go hang out with this guy and uh he was obsessed with how great michael cimino was what a raw deal he had gotten go figure yeah pre-butt lift mickey i guess <laughs> that's right he had his the early years yeah yeah uh still love him to this day oh he's the and, best and um and the best oh, great and, and, and the, his the story wrestler. was amazing yeah and, oh my god yeah. and the pope of greenwich village oh fantastic he, both he yeah. and eric roberts are so yeah, when great he punches the refrigerator oh my yeah. god you can feel your knuckles bleed yeah know? yeah yeah i'm with you uh so let's fast forward to then you're out of uh high school prep school you went away i went away for a couple of years then i went to new york went to columbia 
uh, basically was writing the whole time. You know, I just started I'm writing. Just move your mic sure. Just a tiny bit. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Should I lean in or lean out? Oh uh, no, good? in is okay. good. In is okay. Good. Uh, now I feel guilty, like I've somehow sabotaged the entire, <laughs> all these priceless bon mots that I've been dispensing. Um, what did you ask? What happened after that? Uh, yeah, so you get out of... So I was in college, and I was writing the whole time. I had this tutor. I always wanted to be a writer. Always, always, always. Any particular form? Well, I was the kind of guy who like read the backs of cereal boxes as a kid, and then grew up and wrote the backs of cereal boxes, essentially. I mean, I just did anything. I loved short stories. I loved journalism. So I wrote short stories, and I did kind of... was the tail end of gonzo journalism, so I got caught up in that. But also, because I needed money, and I sort of didn't do well with straight jobs like you know i had xerox gigs and stuff people remember xerox you know copy places mm-hmm. get fired i did uh porn stories and i remember being so naive that when i turned in my first short story which they titled poontang with a country twang thank you <laughs> the guy said uh well, what name do you want to use this was for beaver magazine <laughs> one of the greats i'm like what do you mean what name he's like well you're not going to use your name you know and then i realized oh yeah okay uh, and I wrote the fake sex letters for Penthouse for a while. What was the name you used for that first I, one? I, I think, I, I, I don't remember, but it wasn't anything very creative. Uh, I think Ben Jared or something, because I saw it in the subway on an ad for like podiatrist or something on the yeah. way down there. Dr. <laughs> ben Jared. So I took that name. Uh, Although, since you mentioned pseudonyms, later I did do a, a porn film that failed as a porn film, Cafe Fleshed, and became... It replaced Pink Flamingos at the New Art as an art film. But I took my high school principal's name, Herbert W. Day, who used to swat, swat us. So I made him a famous and pornographer. You wrote that movie? Uh, I guess. I yeah. mean, like you want to claim writing a porn movie. But yeah, okay. I wrote that with the director. And But I, the, the point is, it's a, it's a pseudonym story. That's what made me think of it. Yes. Um, I don't know how drugs affected you or alcohol. My, 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 my linear fucked. thinking is... Yeah. Uh, a bit Jackson Pollock like. Yeah, yeah, mine is too. It's uh, it's hard sometimes to. It's it's like a thousand drops of rain coming down, and I'm yeah. trying to catch them one at a time. Right. That's why novels are good as opposed to screenplays, because novels you can digress for 500 yards. Oh yeah, that but makes sense. movies you got to go boom, boom, boom. Think like a man, you know. Just a What's tricky. your favorite medium to write in? Love them all, really. I mean, I love movies when they're done, but basically writing a movie is like writing with somebody yelling in your ear and slapping you in the back of the head the whole time, you know. But I, mean, I always love novels. Because there's that's, so many constraints. Yeah, there's always somebody changing and shit. But, I, you know, I love novels. I mean, that's essentially I sabotaged many a lucrative, like I was ridiculous TV money and movie money. Then I would stop and quit my massive amount of consultant money for CSI to write like a 25 grand book. I fatty in this case uh, it didn't take two years because I just I sort of feel like I don't know if you remember um, uh, Death of a Salesman you know Willie Loman's neighbor says about him at his funeral you know he had all the wrong dreams you know and I always feel like man I could have had had I just been a TV <laughs> I had all these opportunities but I always wanted to write novels isn't that great though that you and I you... did Six Unpublished before Permanent Midnight you know before that became can you can you look though at I just got it, to smell something. It smells so good in here. Do you yeah, like all of a sudden it smells like... Uh, all of a sudden we're getting like... Like, so like a bakery or something. Yeah, like they're making fruit rolls next door. Anyway, yeah, I, don't know. I was somebody... going to really commend you on, on whatever that apparatus was. Yeah, this is like an office building. I don't know where that... Somebody must have just ordered lunch or something. 
I hope that's what it is. But can you, like when you described that, that you, uh, you know, temporarily left that money to go write this thing that moved you, you know, that's like, that's impressive to me. That's not something to be uh, Yeah, a, a, it's impressive, of. but it didn't, you know, I could have kept it all going. You know, I could have done both. Uh, I've just, you know, it's difficult when you're raised in, for lack of a better term, you know, unstable and saying whatever. You know, it's it's hard to tell integrity from self-sabotage. <laughs> That's, Do you know what I'm saying? It's that I know exactly what so, you're saying. So, yeah, it sounds good. But at the same time, I mean, I've, I've what, fucked up, lost, whatever, you know, just a lot of stuff because... Like, I wrote Bad Boys 2, sort of by, you know, it just happened. I was one of 16 writers. I didn't fight for my name. My name ended up on it so I could buy a house and put my kids through Northwestern. But then it's like, well, hey, do you want to write Rush Hour 3? It's like, no, I think I'm going to go write an obscure novel now that yeah. like 11 people with Pierce Klitz in Wisconsin will read, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, wise move, you know? <laughs> Not uh, to brag, yeah. but yeah. So let's, let's is any of this making sense? I mean, does this track is. on any level? Okay, because I, I love the idea it's, of your show because it's, it's just talking about the meat of it all, and it's you never know? linear. It's yeah. never linear. Oh, good. It's, good. it's um, yeah. Well, some of them, I listen to a few of your shows. Some people go through their life. Some of them are, but we, not we, us. We move around a, yeah. a lot, and yeah. uh, whenever I get interviewed by people, I rarely go in a linear fashion because something yeah. will spark something in yeah, my mind, and yeah, I'll. Yeah. Feel it's more like, yeah. I'm having trouble describing. Well, it, it, I, I know I hear everything you're not saying. <laughs> uh, it's funny because you know from being a journalist for a lot of years, and I would always write about very odd subjects and odd people. You know, my beat was the offbeat. Uh, I, I like being where you are, you know, but I've had to learn to sort of, especially lately, doing in the podcast era, mm -hmm. you know, to sort of, and you never want to repeat stories, so it's always challenge well i'm yeah. fucked then because i talk about the same five yeah, I, things I, when i go on podcasts. i said you never want to i didn't say I oh okay yeah. yeah uh yeah i have a couple you know go-to nuggets yeah. um so you're you're uh doing this porn writing how did you how did you fall into that i answered an ad well the first thing i i uh i answered an ad in a paper Though they were looking for short stories, that is exactly how I fell into it. And you know, it's sort of a small world back in the '70s, and you did one, and you could fall into another one. And then uh, I, I literally answered an ad for Hustler magazine to be their humor editor, and because uh, I, I kind of had sort of drug issues in New York. To say that I was just a lonely weirdo writing like about sex, you know, not having gotten laid, and like you know, God, unless I flew somebody in from another town. Um, and uh, so I ended up in the YMCA in Columbus, Ohio, writing for uh, Larry Flint, thinking this was going to be some really sexy, you know, I go into this office building and, you know, go up to the third floor and there's like, give me the two, you open a door, there's like a room full of like ladies who look like Mrs. B or Aunt B, remember mm -hmm. from yeah. uh, Mayberry and they're all putting dildos in boxes. You know, <laughs> hot. You know? <laughs> it was just this crazy world. But there's all these outsider kind of weirdos who were writing for Larry Flynn, who employed a lot of 
characters, you know. And had he been shot at that point yet? He got shot later while I was there. I was only there for six months, but I long enough to get moved to L.A., mm-hmm. you know, and finance to move. Six months to the day, I got fired by Paul Krasner, of all people, who was then an editor. But, yeah, I was there when he got shot. I mean, he had, you know, all kind of stuff. I mean, he had photographs of politicians doing things. I mean, he was... Even now, he's like this progressive force behind a lot of uh, uh, outing hypocrites, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I was there. That was it. Was a pretty insane time. So then, what's the what's the next phase? And, and when you're in this moment where you're doing that, are you thinking? Um, I'm moving up. Are you thinking I'm moving sideways? Are you thinking <laughs> I'm moving down? Are you just happy that you've got a I, roof I over your head? I, you know, I was never, the word career was never in my head. I just sort of had this sort of hippie beatnik ethos where I wanted to write, but I wasn't rich. So I had to do what I had to do. And, you know, I, I had gotten advice once from a, uh, a writing you know, I studied with some people over the years, like Raymond Carver and Tobias Wolf. They all said, don't use the same muscle to make a living, which, of course, is all I ever did because I never wanted a job job. Um, I, I think I always thought someday I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write books. But I didn't actually publish a book till I was 40. You know, I would write a short story that was in Playboy or some literary mag. And uh, I mean, I won a literary prize very early, a prestigious thing called a Pushkar Prize for a story that was rejected by Hustler. I mean, so my career was always fairly fucking sketchy and befuddling, you know? Uh, so, and then I got into journalism out here and wrote for a lot of magazines and got columns and stuff and was always trying to write fiction. And the way I got into TV, that the ALF thing you mentioned, uh, I kind of slept my way to the middle, you know? I <laughs> met a woman who had seen this uh, movie and... Uh, wanted to take a meeting, which I had never even taken a meeting before. And I remember we met in her office, which had been John Candy's house because her producer had bought mm-hmm. that. I remember thinking, like, this is my first brush with fame. I mean, wow, John Candy, like, sat on the, sat on this toilet seat, you know. <laughs> Amazing. Here I am. Uh, and anyway, so she needed a green card. And for $3,000, I married her. And it also happens she was working for this producer named Tom Patchett, who uh, eventually did ALF and had done some shows before. And he brought me on just because he liked my fiction and Playboy. But I didn't know from, like, margins. I, did, I didn't even... I thought people just went out in front of a camera and talked. <laughs> I didn't even know what the fuck they did. And I wish I was more together because I had so many opportunities. But I, I always viewed TV as with some sort of shame, you know? Yeah. So I never really pursued it. I would take it reluctantly. I was kind of dickish about it. Uh, and that's how I got into that. And w- and what was your emotional life like at this at this Bleak, point? Talk, brutal. Talk I, no, I was always a major fucking depresso, uh, massively depressed, suicide. You know, and always, you know, use the word self medicating. I I don't know that I was consciously doing that back in those days. I was just sort of a garbage head. Uh, soon thereafter, I got into heroin, and uh, or there was a drug called Loads that all the LA punks were doing, which was like. Dordan and, and Codeine's, which mimicked the heroin high, but then they disappeared. And uh, I just got into heroin when I was late 20s. And uh, drugs for me, they were self-medicating and they were an escape. But really, it was like, if you need an adjective, it's in the syringe. It's in the joint. You know, it was always about working. I wasn't like a party guy. I was a loner, always kind of lived alone. Even with this woman, we ended up, 
grotesquely enough, it's like dating. It's not like, then she's like, do you want to live together? And I'm like, well, that's corny. We're married, you know, and we ended up having a child together. But by then I was completely strung out and got thrown out of the house and, uh, when the kid was two. Uh, so when you that, rem- remember the first time you stuck a needle in your arm, what do you remember thinking or feeling? You always hear this, but suddenly it's like I'm home. Every molecule in the universe was in its right place. It's not just the euphoria. It's the lack of that free floating angst. You know, it's that classic syndrome where you don't know how uncomfortable you are or have been mm-hmm. until you get comfortable and you realize like, <sighs> that's what it was for me. And uh, it made everything very real because you can be an artist or you can do this or you can do that. But once you're a junkie, you commit to a subculture and a life of sort of desperation and adventure and wildness and criminality that is, uh, I guess it's something I thought I needed to do, you know, if I had consciously thought about it. But I continued to work and continued to, you know, be fired from all the best shows like Twin Peaks or Northern Because Expansion. you were nodding so, out or not doing the work or both? Uh, eventually I remember I was the last person to actually turn in a script on a a typewriter for Twin Peaks. And I, I I do believe that what I heard back was, uh, uh, yeah, you turned in a script with blood and hair on it, you know, (laughs) 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 which, you know, you really got to be at the top of your game for them to accept that, you know? Uh, so yeah, it was a complete failure. And, uh, I laugh now. But at the same time, I'd had a pretty, you know, my journalism career was going up and up, you know, and uh, it was back when they did feature magazines. I would like spend two months in the funeral industry, like hanging out with morticians and going before six feet under. Unfortunately, all this great shit was in the pre-internet era. So none of it is anywhere. You know, it's like it never happened. You must have loved that. Just delving into those. I kind of loved it because I was very shy, you know, kind of uptight, but I would just get low. And then go write about, uh, you know, singles, the singles. This was back when there were the first dating services and all that. And, you know, go to a nude singles retreat at Elysium, you know, up in Topanga and uh, be rebirthed and passed around nude in a giant hydro pool, you know. Uh, And I did a lot of that. Were you high when that happened? Oh, I was blasted. I couldn't do it. Are you kidding me? I was out of my fucking mind. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, sure. Of course goes without saying i mean i couldn't uh you know it's like when they asked william burroughs why he did heroin he said so i can get up in the morning and shave i mean it, <laughs> how, it, it was about functioning but also that was even even in the pre-harian the harry harian days um i did a lot of drugs you know whether it was quaaludes or codeines or pod or you know acid i just was fucked up all the time and especially when i wrote and when i went out and because I learned early on how to do drugs and look straight. So, you you know, I had this expression I would wear in my forehead like this. So that when I was a million miles away and I was interviewing, I don't know, some mortician or at Esquire, I became like new starlet boy. I would interview starlets. He's got to be listening. His brow is furrowed. His brow is furrowed and he's nodding. Yeah. And I had a tape recorder on so I could deal with it all later, mm-hmm. you know. So that was how I functioned. Talk about what... Be as specific as you can about your emotional life. Sure. Um, during this time when you're not high. 
I can tell you it was massive shame because I had no personal life. I, I, you know, I, I'd have a girlfriend here and there, but I, I was so ashamed about what I was, the amount of time I spent alone, and my just my feelings about myself. I mean, I was working my way up to low self-esteem. I mean, I, I could, that was like five flights up from where I got my mail, you know? So I just, I hated myself, and I had so much shame so that showing up and, and I about, remember about just who uh, I was. Okay, more than just, just the drug abuse. Oh, forget the drug abuse. This was I mean I I'd carried this the drug abuse was for that, you know, kind of addressed that and would relieve it. But it wasn't just that I was high, ashamed about being high. I was ashamed about who I was. And I remember, you know, because I became pretty you know, I had a column in like Los Angeles magazine and uh you know, I was writing for the Reader and LA Weekly, which well the Reader doesn't exist. You know, all these places and I worked all the time. I went to the Miss America pageant. I mean it all kind of crazy shit. There's somewhere you want to be high. Um <laughs> and but basically, you know, my sort of three AM staring at the ceiling sense of just stomach clutching despair. Massively suicide. I had tried to commit suicide once sort of half heartedly when I was twenty. And then I just figured I'm just gonna keep doing drugs and writing and like suicide really isn't necessary. I can just sort of just keep going and see what happens. You know, I was just alone and ashamed of it. Uh and it became self perpetuating. Were were the were the thoughts any more particular than I hate who I am and I and I'm terrified of my mother life. used to always she had this sort of mantra you know you'll never be a man she said that to you yeah you'll never be a man and what a horrible thing to say to a child yeah well whatever you know uh, <laughs> I, I neither I neither condone nor defend uh <laughs> yeah, boy, is my face red. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it sinks in. So I just had a deep and abiding shame, you know, about that, which at times affected me sexually, at times affected me just sort of organically being in the world. You know, I couldn't meet the eyes of the Seven Eleven guy when I was like uh, buying my 15th lighter and spoon set. You know, because oddly enough, they sell they would they don't sell cutlery at Seven Eleven. They used to sell ladles. So before I copped every day, I would go to the same fucking like guy because I didn't want to drive with them in the car. You know, but I had to get high there. Uh, so I just had a sense of myself as really being creepy and uh, off putting, and but could manifest. I don't want to say charm, but I could I could get by because I you know you learn early in life not to sound like Dale Carnegie, but you know this because you're. You do what you do, but people love talking about themselves. So I would always deflect conversations to not talk about me. And if you have a conversation with somebody and they talk for five, 59 minutes and you talk for an hour, they think you're brilliant, you know, <laughs> because... You, you mean the conversation lasts yeah, if, an, if hour an hour and they talk, and they for, talk five, for 59 minutes, yeah. they think you're just incredibly articulate yeah. and brilliant. Yeah. And I, you know, I got by sort of doing that. And uh, I think... It was a great blessing in a way, not to sound like somebody who was, you know, I'm blessed. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a lucky thing being a dope fiend and then getting clean because you can't hide and you got to confront things. And uh, I met a lot of people I really admired who were clean, like the author Hubert Selby, who wrote Last Exit to Brooklyn and Requiem for Dream, who helped me when I was first getting clean. And I met a lot of actors and uh, I won't name them. 
because, you know, it's people like to preserve their anonymity. But I saw that, you know, I had this thing where I thought, among other problems, you know, all my heroes were dope fiends. Let's face it, you know, like Lenny Bruce, uh, Keith Richard, uh, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, Burroughs, you know, but like Keith isn't there with a warm towel when you're kicking, you know, <laughs> I learned the hard way. Uh, and I remember thinking and telling Hubert Sell, because I don't know if you know his work, but it's probably the darkest, he's maybe one of the darkest writers in America. And also, you know, Norman Mailer was calling him a genius and, you know, but he was working in a gas station that like, you know, after 10 years after his seminal book, uh, I'm stealing your word, Seminole, now. Mm -hmm. uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn came out. But I remember saying to him, well, you know, I just, I'm sort of afraid that, like, if I don't use drugs, I'm going to lose my edge, you know? And, you know, he had this cackle, you know, he's this little <laughs> kind of guy. And he just looked at me, he fucking busted out laughing. He's like, you dumb motherfucker. You know, until you give up drugs, you don't know how fucking crazy you are, you know? And it is really true that things if you can marshal it, you know, and not let it drive you off a fucking roof, uh, you know, there's a lot in there. And, and that's kind of why you use drugs in the first place. And I think when you're when you're sober, your creativity comes from a wider palette than it does. It does. But for me, the issue was never about creativity so much. It was about fear and doubt. Like, writing for me was like... Uh, walking on a high wire and what dope did was make me forget there was a no net you know i didn't care now later as you hear these things like you're either in faith or in fear you 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 develop this much sort of healthier cosmically eastern kind of mindset of like well you know no matter what happens you're going to be okay which is it's so antithetical to everything I've ever felt, learned, or <laughs> experienced on a cellular level. But, you know, if you just kind of trick yourself into saying that, you can, you can relax and write. Because it was never about, can I write or do I have talent? It was about, can I sit in a chair without chewing my arms off? You know, am I going to be entertaining? Am I going to be able to function and write? And... Uh, you know, in writing novels, in particular fiction, it's perfect. You can do it naked, alone, and fucked up, or whatever, not fucked at four in the morning. But, you know, movies, TV, you've got to go into a room. You've got to talk. You've got to make sure there's not shit on your shoe, and you don't smell, and you can have a conversation. And that is, like, no easier off drugs than on them, really, you know, yeah. on, on some days. Uh, until you become a little bit famous or successful for five minutes, which I have been and have not been in equal measure. Uh, and then you can sort of relax because people, you know, like, oh, he's a weirdo, but hey, you know. Yeah. Uh, so does that answer your question? Yeah. I don't even remember what the fucking question was, but I'm I answering I don't either, it. Yeah. but, but uh, that's... I mean, this is, this is deep water, and I, I love talking to you about it because this isn't... This isn't normal interview fodder, but it's sort of where we all live. I mean, it is. How do you? I mean, you. But you were a stand-up. I mean, that it you was. really. When you got sober, that had to be a whole other experience. I mean, I've talked to Marin about this a lot. It's a. Uh, it's an intense thing. It it was an intense uh, thing, and you know the weird thing was is I never got loaded on stage. I was I would wait until I was oh, done. You were that guy. Yeah. You always hear writers say that. I never wrote a word drunk. Yeah, I didn't when I I did a TV show for a number of years, and I yeah, never. You Annabelle, right? I, I, yeah, 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 and, yeah. And I never uh, was fucked up doing that. But as soon as 
we would rap, it was it was on. So you know the the unmanageability for me wasn't when I was fucked up. It was when I wasn't fucked I up. I totally get it because I was of on course. pins and needles. I was yes, that's I, what nobody understands. I remember uh, we we did a show one time um, that was sponsored by Gallo, and so we taped oh, in, no. in in Napa Valley, and this was at the height of my obsession with with wine. And was I knew, that your drug of choice? Uh, wine and weed and yeah, beer and nice. beer. Yeah, but I, I was a garbage pail. You know, I do. I yeah. do whatever. That's you why we're friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember they had some special bottles pulled aside for us, but we had to wait until we finished. And you know that craving when you're just you're on pins and needles and you're anticipating that sweet release of the buzz hitting you. Yeah, and. Our producer wasn't liking the take that we were doing, and we had so I was like five minutes away from getting that release. You had to do it over, and she kept making us do it over oh. and over. And I was like, "Can I just have just a little sip?" Of this? She's like, "No, let's wait until we're done." And I just remember wanting oh. to scream. And, oh my god! And then on that on that same trip, we. We were go- a lot of times when you would go do these, then you would go to a dinner with spon- uh, oh, yeah. people that were sponsoring the show and et cetera, et cetera. And it would always be at a very nice restaurant. And I always loved that because they would usually get yeah. good wine. And I, and I remember I was jonesing for that, for that drink. Sure. And we're in a van with a bunch of people and we're heading to this restaurant that's like a half hour away. And we get about a half hour into the ride and they go, oh no, we went the wrong way. <laughs> Oh, and shit. I just remember you must have cracked a sweat. I wanted to just go up and str- strangle the person that was driving. Oh my god, I so understand. And yeah. I couldn't see at that point that I was the problem. Yeah. That it wasn't that that this was just life. Yeah, that stuff happens. Course. But to me, it was like I wanted I wanted to lecture that person about how to read directions and responsibility and responsibility and put it all on of them. Course. And, that, and, and, you know, that's that's alcoholism that's and drug addiction. It's, but the, the junk equivalent of that is when you know you're going to get it. You, you're flooded with you're already high already. You're already high. But if you if for some reason the guy isn't there, then you're twice as sick and twice as whatever you were in that yeah. car going the wrong direction, just like furious and sick. Furious. And how dare they? And yeah. you know, yeah. So, so what led uh, you to getting sober? You've been sober now for nineteen years. Yeah, but it took me. I was a real slow. I was that guy who relapsed so many times that I had like relapsosis. People wouldn't sit near me. And also, I wrote a book about getting off dope, which became a movie and you know was big in europe and big here and what was the movie uh permanent midnight oh okay yeah and uh, we talked about that but the secret i had is that while writing the book about getting off dope i relapsed because i had gotten all my dreams everything i wanted you know the opportunity i was like a celebrity junkie i mean could anything be better you know a writer and it was all gonna happen and i was scared i'd fuck up and also even more significantly, it didn't change how I felt about myself. It's like you won the lottery, but you know the bag's the wrong color and it's really creeping me out. <laughs> <laughs> All the money is in the wrong color. And so, you know, I, I had that bit of shame. So I relapsed for a year and a half. I mean, yeah, straight relapse for a year and a half. Then after that, I was clean. But be, 
before that book and be, you know, my first attempts at getting clean were I, I could never stick it out. I mean, I went to, you know, I kicked on the street. I was in Cedars a couple of times. I ended up at this halfway house in Phoenix, you know, stone cold sober. I'm 38 years old working at a McDonald's in Phoenix at like, it's a hundred degrees and the guys from Motorola who are like younger than me and the fact at the sales force across the street from the uh, McDonald's are like looking at me like you fucking you know everybody can shit on the fucking uh, McDonald's guy because he's a creep and I, I remember you know like my 16 year old cohorts who worked there were like I think he's retarded <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean and that is it's, I don't know if this is your experience but the truth about getting off of dope and trying to get clean and sober is like right at your weakest is kind of when you have to be strongest because your life you come to in this absolute holocaust of shit you've fucked up uh just this wreckage and you know you're, you're dealing with this stuff and it's very black and white when you're an addict you either have it or you don't or you're on the way to get it but then you get clean it's all gray area and it's a nightmare. And I, th- I think the thing that's that's so tough is when it's that bleak time when your your whoopee is taken away from you, your your blankie, you know the 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 drug. Yeah, what, what Selby used to call the sugar tit. Yeah, because we can control the tit, mm-hmm. unlike when, when mommy was doing it. Yeah, yeah. When that gets taken away from you, and you're left with all your feelings, and you suddenly have clarity that the ways you've been coping in the past aren't working anymore and you can't go for them there there is this abyss that you either decide to fall in it with faith or to go back to your coping mechanisms and it's it's this fork in the road well put you've let go of one hand but you haven't grabbed hold of the other one and that's why for me seeing people who i really really respected and finding out they had destroyed so much and been you know junkies or alcoholics meant so much to me it shouldn't but it did you know uh they always say principles over personalities but i i I loved seeing people i knew uh who had some of the same problems i did and knowing they had made it out but it took me a long time because all those issues of the self-hate and the shame and the creep fest that I saw in the mirror and felt under my skin was so amplified uh, with, you know, without any serotonin left in my brain, you mm-hmm. know, because <laughs> I also smoked crack and shot coke like a motherfucker. I mean, I was one of those guys with the bright to smoke crack to get off of heroin. I mean, that's, <laughs> that was that was my treatment plan. <laughs> you know, I, I advise that for the kids. It's funny. You know, I. I Speaking the other night to Penn, uh, I don't know, some young writers thing, and they always say, How do you become a writer? So I always say, Destroy your life, <laughs> you know, and then if you make it back, you have a lot of interesting stories, and you'll have met some <laughs> memorable characters, you know. So, talk about what what the the struggles are nowadays um, emotionally and how you deal with those in a way that's sober i will tell you the the real struggle i have now which sounds ridiculous and you know i just turned 60 i met a woman and at the same time i heard about i also have, have had hepatitis c this whole time which i don't know if you know anything about it but the liver is the organ of anger in Chinese medicine and having hepatitis C is like waking up every day 
I'm answering your question, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's yeah. a long way around. But it's like waking up every day as if you're hungover. You're tired. You feel fucked up. and You haven't used, but your liver's fucked. And, you know, I've been basically dying for like 20 years. And, you know, I never did interferon, which is the drug they prescribed, because I knew people who killed themselves on it. And with my Jew genome, my Eastern European genome, <laughs> it only worked 40% of the time. So long story short, I did this... Uh, trial drug at Cedars, the ripe age of 58 or 59 or something. And uh, I got cured. Really? I got cured. And at the same time, the day I went on it, my girlfriend told me she was pregnant. I met this somehow. I mean, you know how they always say guys join rock and roll bands still get laid? Like, I would have never met a woman if it weren't for book tours and reading. You know, I met this great woman who was also a writer, uh, uh, starting out as a writer. And... uh, the first thing I said was, you know, if you happen to be near a pregnant woman, uh, don't touch her. You can't even, if, if she so much as, it's like, honey, if, if she so much as puts a finger and you're sweating the bed, that baby going to be going purple with wheels, you know. So that happened. So suddenly, I'm in a relationship. She has to be banished back to like, you know, she goes and stays with her family in Austin. And I'm on my own doing this drug that feels like bad acid. Uh, for 12 weeks that cures me. So fast forward to now, you know, I've got a 24-year-old daughter. I've, I've got a 20-month-old baby. I'm married, and I'm fucking, I'm kind of happy. I'm almost embarrassed to say it. And that is a problem I've never dealt with because I don't know where you get motive. You know, I'm happy. <laughs> and uh, how do I write? Is there is there a fear also that the other shoe will drop? Or are of you, course. Are, are you hoping the other shoe will drop so you'll have more creative? I am yanking creative? at my feet. No, I've reached. I, I don't know if it's just, you know, because when you, you're not this old, and I hope you get there someday, but, you know, you really do kind of see the horizon. And, I, you know, I, I spent my whole life writing. And it was the eternal question. Do you write because you have no life or do you have no life because you write? You know, and all I ever really wanted to be deep, deep, deep down was like fucking stand up. But I was too fucked up to stand up. You know, I couldn't be a musician. I I never did stand up, though I wanted to. So I write funny books. But now I'm in this position where like I have enough to live. And I've got this kind of great woman. And uh, I hate people talk about how happy they are. But I'm talking about it because in the context of this, it's a real liability in the context of our conversation, because it's I don't know how to be creative without being fucked up and in pain at some perpetual four in the morning. So that's been tricky. Wow. It's been really fucking tricky because I am the last I don't have the happiness gene. You know, it's just not there. But it's you know, it's not like, you know, daisies and buttercups, um, but, you know, I mean, my idea happens. But compared is, to what it but used compared to be, it to the, is. Compared to every day, it's like, and I've always been alone all my, I mean, I was married, my second marriage, we didn't even live together. I mean, that's how normal I am, you know? Uh, yeah, that was a festive decision, uh, which I won't go into, but. I could, but, you know, the relationships we get into. Because even sober, I was like, you know, for years, you know, I'm still like my self-esteem is such that I feel like in order to write a book, I've got to be in some kind of emotional pain. Even to the point where I will put a sentence or something in every book that is really going to be embarrassing or incriminating if the book comes out. 
but I'm betting against myself, sort of. And then it comes out, and you have little success or whatever. Because you feel like the universe is so... Because the universe it, needs that pound of flesh, you know? It's and, so and this nuts. will ensure its success this, if there's because, a way that I can be hurt. Because my biggest failures are all my biggest successes. It's like betting against your favorite sports team. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, Except This will ensure they'll win. Yeah, because I will lose a bundle, yeah. you know? Uh, so it's a strange and interesting and... You know, I I don't want to say a fragile time because it's, it's just I, you know I've been married for a little while and uh, since September twenty seventh and the kid's twenty months old and you know, uh, it's it's a different life because I I'm I'm really close. You know, my daughter who's twenty four is a great writer and you know an act trying to be an actress and very fucking talented. But you know, it's hard and seeing that I wasn't there, you know. Um, I always showed up. You know, I would take the bus to her preschool. I'd somehow show up. But, you know, I was living in a garage. So we'd take the bus to my garage and, you know, uh, when I, you know, and I would be loaded. And it's funny because my new kid just got enrolled at this preschool where the last time I was there, I, I just remember sort of like passing out in the little boys' room and having some little kids staring down at me. It's like, like I had a rig in my arm, you know. It's like, oh, Jesus. And I was just there Sunday, and I thought, man, never in a million years. Like you just, uh, if you don't die young, weird shit happens. <laughs> and the weird shit that happened to me to answer your question now is, I'm kind of happy, you know. But I can easily go into like get on the regretometer. And think about how the millions I could have or the shit I could have. And because I write books now and, uh, you know, I'm like an old jazz guy. They're very popular in France. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I do a lot of podcasts. The last one was not reviewed in the New York Times. So, you know, there's much to bitch about and gratitude doesn't come naturally. But, you know, I've reached, reached a weird state where it's like, you know what? It doesn't because associated with that unhappiness is drama. You know, there's all the drama of your despair and your misery and your Nietzsche-like self-loathing, you know? It's like, you know what? I always remember when I was... I spent a lot of time in Paris for a while with with someone there, and my books, like I say, come out there. There's a thing called the catacombs in Paris, which if you walk into it, it's floor-to-ceiling skulls. Wow. Just some cemeteries got emptied out and the... You know, Paris, it's like traveling through time. So I remember visiting there, and I have this postcard that I keep. And whenever I get really fucking down, I just think, you know, all those guys probably had regret over their book deals. You know, I'm sure (laughs) they had some really important shit they were sweating, you know. But now they're an anonymous fucking skull in a pile of anonymous skulls in rooms full of anonymous skulls. So you know what? Get the fuck over it. Relax. You know, that's that's my uh, that is my sort of inspirational <laughs> fair. What that gets be- me through. <laughs> what a beautiful moment to end on. There's Thank no, you. There's no way we can't end on that. <laughs> Thank that you. Was- um, I hope I help. I hope I help. <laughs> I, I have always wanted to do an episode where we end on a pile of skulls. And I here just, we are. I, I, yeah. I was born to do this for you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, well, that, thank you so much, man. It was really, really a, a pleasure. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Many, many thanks to, to Jerry. It was really nice to sit down and uh, and chat with him and uh, and get to meet him. Uh, the 20th anniversary edition of Permanent Midnight uh, just came out, and uh, it's got a nice introduction by Nick Sheff, who uh, who wrote Tweak. 
And uh, Jerry's also writing for uh, the IFC show Marin now, which uh, I think is I think is IFC. Yeah, it's uh, I always get IFC and, and Sundance confused. Um, and Jerry also has a new memoir out called OG Dad: Weird Shit Happens When You Don't Die Young. And um, so check all of those uh, all those out. And you can follow Jerry on Twitter at some. Uh, Jerry Stahl, and Stahl is spelled S-T-A-H-L. Um, before we get to some surveys, I want to give some love to uh, one of our favorite sponsors, goodtherapy.org. Um, I, you've heard us talk endlessly on this podcast about how important a good fit is with the therapist. In fact, we have some great surveys coming up that highlight uh, that. And what is great about goodtherapy.org is it is a really great website for you to search and find the therapist that is uh, right for you. Since 2007, uh, goodtherapy.org has helped millions of people find qualified counselors and therapists. Uh, All of the professionals listed in goodtherapy.org's online directory have been personally screened. They meet uh, strict licensing standards and educational requirements. And most importantly, they all share the belief that people and relationships are capable of growth and change. So doesn't matter what you're struggling with, depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, eating issues, relationship problems, or anything else, therapy um, may be helpful for you. And there is hope. There are people out there that do care and change is possible. So go find the right therapist at uh, www.goodtherapy.org want to also remind you guys that uh, there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com. You can make either a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, become a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. It doesn't seem like a lot of money to you, but it makes a big difference because it does add up and it helps keep the podcast going. Um, You can also support us financially by Entering through our Amazon search portal, if you're going to buy something in Amazon, and then they will give us a couple of nickels uh, if you buy something and it doesn't cost you anything. You can also support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about the website uh, or the podcast, and giving us a good rating. And you can also spread the word through social media about the podcast. That helps greatly. So any or all of those would be good, and uh, I appreciate it. Because I know how difficult it is to get off the couch. Uh, this is a, an email I got from a guy who calls himself Eric. And uh, he's 30 years old. And he writes, uh, Do you or anyone you have talked to ever feel like you don't want to get better? I read a blog post called Going Off My Meds. And in it, the author described how amazing she felt taking Celexa, like she could finally actually enjoy life, etc. That is appealing to me, but it's also scary. Some part of me really wants to remain the bitter, sad person I have been. And I wrote him back and I said, yeah, I think it's really common for people to be afraid of getting better because it's the unknown. And I think that there is an inherent fear in our lives of getting better because then maybe we fear that it'll all come crashing down and we'll feel even worse. Uh, but I believe that it's bullshit. It's the mean part of our brain talking to ourselves and that it is worth getting better. But, um, and I do occasionally backslide, uh, but never to the point where I was before I, I got help. So, um, I think that's totally normal to, 
to feel that way. But uh, I think those of us that suffer with whatever affliction that we have, there is a certain sick comfort in the known, no matter how bad it is. And the promised better unknown can often seem scarier uh, because for a lot of us, our trust was uh, shattered as, as kids or adults or adolescents or tweeners. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Deviant Lost Soul. About her depression, she writes, I stare at the clock. I sleep. I stare at the clock again. It's 7 p.m. I go back to sleep. You might turn pro. You got the goods. Um, right now, I'm, I'm amateur status. I'm trying to go pro, but um, I'm having trouble uh, stringing together the uh, going back to bed at 7 p.m. Uh, 7 p.m. is usually when I get up from my nap. Um, just had a flash of shut up just shut up it's already it's only the first day of 2016 and you are already disgusting yourself (laughs) about her alcoholism and drug addiction she writes i hurt i do a line it stops about her love addiction all day waiting for your text then i can be human again about her sex addiction control i get off knowing i'm yours for 30 minutes then you leave and I am once again a fucking shell of insecurity about her codependency. If you're not happy, I'm not happy. Please just be happy so I can take a break. About being a sex crime victim, I used to be someone until I met you. About her anger issues, the rage I feel inside is so unpredictable it scares me. Thank you for that. Some great ones in there. This is an awful moment filled out by Sockeye Girl, and she writes, In therapy today, my therapist tried to address my safety issues with an EMDR exercise. We've talked about doing EMDR for a while, but have been hesitant uh, to because of my dissoci- dissociation. And today we figured out uh, that was a smart decision. I found my, quote, safety place and became insanely relaxed and then my therapist a man moved to the couch about a foot away from me and began waving his fingers about six inches away from my face a typical emdr thing and i immediately felt like i was going to die my panic hit the roof and i felt so unsafe i wanted to let myself dissociate so i didn't have to feel this panic anymore i also didn't want to embarrass myself by asking him to stop and just do what he wanted me to do but i spoke up and asked him to stop Even though I fucked up the exercise and did the opposite of trying to find my safe place, I spoke up about someone's actions I didn't want and trusted my body's instinct to protect me. Take that, PTSD. I think that is so awesome of you because that that is what self-advocacy looks like. That is what listening to your body looks like. And um, kudos, kudos to you. This is filled out by Ginger Girl and about her PTSD. She writes, I'm a sponge that has taken in all the shameful and disgusting things done to me. Snapshot from her life. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor who works in treatment. I still struggle daily with my eating disorder, suffocating shame of PTSD, and blackness of depression. I can say all the right things to my clients, but I can't seem to say them to myself. Thank you for that honesty. And I think that's really common uh, among people who work in the mental health industry. But I also think that's what makes them empathic, insightful people. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's classic uh, support group 
dynamic too um is heard somebody say, say in a support group one time, this guy said, uh, I, I, I tell people what to do, and then if it works, I try it myself. And it uh, it made me laugh, but there's a kernel of truth uh, there, because sometimes we need that objective point of view, advice, and encouragement from somebody else to get our uh, ball rolling, uh, as it were. This is filled out by uh, Riley, and she writes about... Uh, her, I suppose this would be uh, compulsive behavior or OCD, she writes, um, and she's gay, and she writes, when you color coordinate your closet and your wife then decides, decides she'd rather place her goddamn jerseys in with her polo shirts where the colors don't even line up, I'd prefer to be kicked in the face. About experiencing sexual bias, she writes, constantly being passed over for higher paying positions by dumber men who can't even use a damn computer. About living with an abuser, constantly walking on eggshells, wondering when the blows will come, uh, then wondering what you did so wrong all along. Snapshot from her life, wanting to die so bad because I feel so broken and alone, then my cat decides he won't leave my goddamn lap. I wonder how many people's lives have been saved by the love of an animal. I bet you a shitload. This is filled out by Shadow, and she writes about being a sex crime victim. Tonight I heard from a therapist for the fourth time in nine months that I am, quote, beyond her scope of practice. Everyone tells me to open up and talk about it, but as soon as I do, I'm too much to handle. I'm starting to think it would be easier to shut up and hold on. To which I say bullshit bullshit. Keep trying until you find someone. Keep trying. This is from Fatty Patty, and uh, this is an awful moment. She writes, I was dreading my annual visit with my mom uh, as she was anorexic and hated fat. I had gained 50 pounds and couldn't tell her. I thought she was being the only, I thought being the only two thin ones in the family is what we had in common. She never said a word about it for three days. Finally, when she was putting down my sister for being fat, I couldn't stand it any longer and said, what about me? I've put on a lot of weight and now I'm fat too. She said, I wasn't fat at all. I looked the same to her. Maybe I just need to exercise more. I could walk up and down the hill a few times a day. I could walk to town. I could clean her basement. Then the microwave dinged and I jumped up to get my food and she said, sit down. I'll all you do is work. Thank you for that. This is filled out by Charlie and about his ADD and ADHD. He writes, having the gift of brilliance is the most frustrating slash dis uh, having the gift of brilliance in the most frustrating disorganized way. About his anxiety, if the phrase what if controlled your life, that may be the most concise definition of anxiety i think i've ever i've ever read thank you for that charlie this is uh filled out by mockingbird and uh mockingbird is a trans male and the, uh, they are actually uh, somewhere between gender fluid and agender um about their anxiety bees under my skin trying to get out god that is such a that is such a great slash horrible um, image about their OCD. An auctioneer in my head soliciting bids for aggressive self-harm and violence. About uh, their hy hypomania, like being light reflecting off of water, being aware that I'm too bright and fleeting, 
but being unable to care about their PTSD, like walking on tiled floor where a certain percentage of the tiles are actually holes that lead to pits. The holes constantly move location, so you never know how to get safely across. About being a sex crime victim, like a ball of clay that can never get the fingerprints out of. Wow, that is, that is deep. About experiencing sexual bias, like being a fish trapped in polluted water while the fish in the other bowls just tell you your gills must be broken because their water is clear. About having borderline personality disorder, feeling like a thunderstorm wrapped in rice paper. Wow, that is poetic. That is poetic. Thank you for those. This is, uh, almost all of these are struggle in a sentence surveys. I don't think we have any shame and secret surveys today. Um, this is filled out by Blackbird and about her self-harm. She writes, relief, like coming back to myself. It quiets the racing in my head. Snapshot from her life. I'm spinning, racing, lost in my own head. I think about every stupid thing I've done today, from missing a turn to explaining something poorly at work. Everything I do feels wrong and is a reflection of my worth as a human being. I'm a fraud masquerading as a functioning person. I think of all my mental strategies to break out of my rumination, but none of them stick. But I have a trump card. I cut and the racing stops. The help, the self-hatred stays. Thank you for that. Thank you for that and sending you some love. This is by uh, The Freak. And about living with an abuser, she writes, I can't afford real rent, so I pay my dad in taking his emotional abuse. Oh, boy, I hope you can get out of there. Snapshot from her life, yelling at me for not doing anything all day when I'm actually heading out the door for a full day. Sounds like your dad is doing some serious projecting. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by Sunshine. And... uh, She writes, when I was 16, I had my first truly helpful therapist. I'd been struggling with trichotillomania, anxiety, and severe depression. My therapist and I were talking about suicide, and I remember so clearly that I had casually, almost cheerfully said that if I took my life, my family might miss me, but they would get over it. I remember she looked me dead in the eye, and the moment I stopped talking, she said, no, they wouldn't. They would never get over it. She went on to point out that they loved me so much and that there would be an empty space without me. That was the first time that I realized that I existed to people outside my own head, that I was more than the gray goop that consumed me, that I was real and I was someone that another human being could love. Now that is an awesome therapist. That is an awesome therapist. That's so touching. Thank you for that. This is filled out by Ruby about her depression. She writes, like I'm lost at sea and no one is looking for me. Oh boy, do I relate to that one. Actually, mine would be more like like I'm lost at sea and a couple of people are looking for me, but I wish they'd turn the other way and go back to their goddamn island. (laughs) About her anxiety, I have nothing to offer the world outside my apartment. Oh my God, do I relate to that one. It never occurs to me I suppose it's because I have such a selfish streak in me that 
I might be able to make the world a better place by getting out of the house because I always think about what it is that I'm going to get. And that negative part of my brain always thinks, well, you're not going to get, you're not going to get anything. You're going to, you're going to be bored or inconvenienced or, uh, you're going to experience, you know, some kind of awful confrontation or something bad's going to happen. Thank God for coffee houses because, uh, I look forward to going to a coffee house every day. And I'm actually excited to, to leave the house and go get, some caffeine, and ignore people. (laughs) This might be my favorite name ever. Uh, He calls himself Cunty McCunterson Cuntingham VIII. I think we all remember Cunty McCunterson Cuntingham VII, who ruled with an iron fist and was beloved by his people until he beheaded uh, his... (laughs) Shut up. Oh, I got I got like halfway into that, and I was like, I don't have an ending for this. Let's go to self-deprecation. The default, the default punchline. Snapshot from his life. I don't trust you. I manipulate you to see if you're safe. You consistently move heaven and earth for me. I absolutely adore you. I'm scared you're going to abandon me. You forgot to text me back once. You're abandoning me. Go fuck yourself and die. I don't trust you. The cycle repeats. Snapshot to make the podcast better. Co-host the podcast with your mom. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, I want to hug you. This is from Catherine and about her depression. She writes, major depressive disorder. I can't. Glimmers of I can, but ultimately, I just can't. Oh, boy, do I relate to that one. Although, lately, I've been getting a lot of I cans done. I finally submitted my proposal um, to uh, merge with a uh, a nonprofit, kind of uh, be under their umbrella. And I should know in about six weeks whether or not they accept me. So I'm uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. That would hopefully uh, bring some more uh, budget into the podcast and... Uh, you know, one of my dreams is to be able to um, go not only around the country and record people, but go to other countries and, and record people. About uh, her alcoholism and drug addiction, I love you, heroin. I love you. You are the friend I have always wanted. About her sex addiction, it feels so good until you realize you despise the person on top of you. Wow. Wow. Poetic. Poetic. This is filled out by Kumquat, and she spells cum, C-U-M, high five, uh, about her love addiction, needing to be needed, and then hating them for being needy. God, you guys are so good at these. Uh, About living with an abuser, slamming your own head against the wall, trying to figure out what to do to make them happy, and then walking on eggshells to keep him from doing it about being an abuser, lashing out verbally, constantly reminding the abuser how shitty they have been. Snapshot from her life, wanting to be everything for everyone and forgetting that I even exist. Thank you for that. This is filled out by Hannah about her depression. She writes, and she's uh, she's a young teenager. She's been between, uh, uh, well, she might not actually even be a teenager. She's been between 10 and 15 years old. Um 
She writes, I'm so far gone, I don't even desire help. I'm at a complete standstill, breathing but not quite living. Uh, About her self-harm, it's not just cutting. It's not some poetic release of pain. It's ugly and dirty and secretive. I will have scars, quote, from the cat for years. Snapshot from her life. My mother turned to me a few weeks ago in the car asking, do you want to try therapy again? I had one session last year. It didn't go well. And afterwards, she never encouraged me to try to get better. So we were both surprised when I said yes. This was not the answer she was looking for. She mumbled something about insurance and we haven't talked about it since. I just need somebody to fix me. I just need my mother. Well, that kind of breaks my heart. And, um, you know, my first thought is... um, yeah, you do need your mother there. And I don't, you know, a great start might be using something like our our sponsor, a goodtherapy.org, because you can find out, do they take insurance? What do they specialize in? How close to you are they? Um, uh, you could uh, get a feel for, for who they are before you even have their your first appointment with them. And, uh, and then th- through meeting and working with your therapist, they can help you find ways to express what it is you're feeling to your mom because it sounds like your mom can't fix you. I I don't think anybody can fix us, but what a good mental health professional or a support group can do is they can guide us to where we can begin to heal ourselves and learn coping mechanisms so people who constantly disappoint us in our lives, it doesn't injure us as much. This is Figgle figured out this is filled out by a woman who calls herself me just me and that's just fine and a snapshot from her life i just thought this is this was beautiful um she writes though i've been in recovery for years and now work in the mental health field there's always those times that i am like oh my god this could all go away and i would have to start all over again if i ignore just one of my early symptoms each time i think that though I remember that each time it has happened, a lesson was learned, and I found getting back was easier because I knew how to get there. What a great example of the two steps forward, one step back um, part of recovery. And um, that is that is the very definition of recovery. Thank you for that. That's That's profoundly helpful. This is a happy moment filled out by Amelia, and she writes... Um, My happy moment involves the use of your podcast. I've struggled with panic disorder and depression since I was a teenager, and I've learned to cope, but I've always had a hard time finding someone who understands the horrors of living with mental illnesses. My work allows me to listen to drown out the white noise with headphones, and on a particularly bad day, I wondered, maybe someone is talking about how I feel on the radio. I started listening to your podcast uh, and felt that glimmer of hope. Well, by the way, we're not on the on the radio. If anyone is going to go try to search for that, um, I started listening to your podcast and felt that glimmer of hope uh, through a suicidal moment when I heard you and your listeners' honesty about their thoughts. I cried, but they were happy tears. When I listen to your show, I know I'm not alone. I know there are people out there who wouldn't judge me on my darkest moments, and I wouldn't judge theirs. I decided to go back to therapy and finally got a true diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, and now I feel like I can breathe. 
It was the happiest moment of my year to know it wasn't because I'm an overly emotional woman who doesn't have her shit together, but something I've been suffering from silently. I want to thank you for your bravery of hosting this show and lending a metaphorical hand to people like me who can be in a crowded room just screaming inside with no one to turn to. Your show makes me cry, laugh, and motivates me to take every day, day by day. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Amelia. That uh, that made my day, speaking of days. This was filled out by Maria and about her anxiety. She writes, I've done something terrible, but I don't know what it is. Oh, that is so great. About being a sex crime victim. If he'd restrained me physically rather than mentally and emotionally, would I feel better or worse? Wow, that's deep. And I can tell you, the second guessing and the self-blame never ends until we decide to shut up that part of our brain. But that is a really, really common side effect of having uh, sexual trauma. And um, it is insidious and it, w- it is sickly genius the way our brain will try to find something to, to make it our fault and to say it wasn't that bad. Snapshot from her life, dated a man who looked like my first abuser and who treated me the same way in a subconscious attempt to gain clarity, left with more painful memories and less answers. Sending you some love, Maria. Is it Maria or Marla? Marla. Sorry, Marla. This was filled out by Flaming C-O-D. BPD, married 20 plus years, narcissistic abuser, who knew? She writes uh, about her anxiety, like electrical snowballs passing through my body and with them a wave of terror. Electrical snowballs. That is, uh, that is quite an image. About her anorexia, scratch it, this is unreachable. About her OCD, when things are out of place, he sees me. I wonder who who he is. Um, oh, maybe uh, her abuser. About her codependency. Like, I committed suicide the day I met him, but it didn't start with him, which makes him my victim. It's sickening. About living with an abuser. Feels like abject terror when you realize what's going on 22 years in. Snapshot from her life. I can't. I'm too scared to. Too scared that he will know the story even though he's never listened to this podcast. Um, and she is seeing a therapist. And uh, I, I really hope you're working uh, in the direction of being able to leave leave this person because you deserve better. This is filled out by Christina Borderline and about being a sex crime victim. She writes, because I was blacked out, it was still my fault. And you know, when I read this, I thought, first of all, I want to call bullshit. Um, Even if you had said, I'm going to drink to the point of blackout tonight around these people who feel sketchy because I just want to perform an experiment to see if they will sexually abuse me. That would still not be your fault. That would still not be your fault. 100% of the blame is on the person who takes advantage of, of that other person. Um, 
snapshot from her life. I have borderline personality disorder, always trying to find some meaning to life, some reason I am here, some magical reason, a Cinderella ending to a turbulent life. It distracts me from the hollow feeling inside with an outer cracked shell. Sending you some love. This is filled out by Ike and a snapshot from his life. He writes, uh, my stepdaughter's situation is getting me down. She's a beautiful, loving seven-year-old girl. Over Thanksgiving, she missed her mom while at her father's. He told her she could walk home. It would be a 10-mile trek. When she said she didn't know the way, he told her she should know that by now. Over Christmas, her little brother broke her crayons and she said it hurt her feelings. Her father told her that her feelings don't matter and that she's just like her mother, always too concerned with the details. I just wish people could see the emotional damage they're causing the little ones. Much love to you and yours. And my thought when I read this was, uh, the people that could see the emotional damage in this, uh, in my opinion, should be uh, the authorities. Because that is straight up emotional abuse. That is straight up emotional abandonment. And um, I don't want to be Budinsky, but if you and your wife want to have full custody over your stepdaughter, start documenting what this fucking asshole is is doing. This was filled out. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way uh, survey. And this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Reprobus. Reprobus? You guys are so smart. He's straight in his 20s. Uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? That had always been there for anyone who asked, no matter what. How does writing that make you feel? Good, because I'm proud of that aspect of myself. Simultaneously frightened, because I don't know of anyone in my life who would do the same for me when I'm feeling down. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I'd go watch people like Marcus Aurelius and other people who devoted themselves to public good and see how they coped with the weight of that life decision. I'm supposed to feel comforted by the people who care about me, but I don't. I feel responsible for their happiness instead of my own. How does that uh, make you feel writing that up out. I don't know how to feel. The need to help others is a deeply held conviction, but it leads to feeling drained, and I don't know how to ask for any sort of support from myself. This, to me, again, I'm not a professional, but the TV show I was on, we once showed Smokey and the Bandit, and I made a pretty nice pie crust, which I feel gives me the credibility to weigh in on this and I think this screams classic codependence and I highly highly recommend getting into a support group for this there's a gazillion um, codependency support groups and um, when when doing things for other people leads you to feeling drained that is not coming from a place of and I hate to use this word abundance it's coming from a place of fear that you're a bad person if you don't and that is not that is not giving. That's codependency. Uh, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Absolutely. I want to know how other people who've devoted themselves to helping other people find a way to allow others to help them when they need it. Oh, yes. You, you would benefit so much from going to a codependency support group. Um, and there are some great 12-step 12, 12 ones. So I highly recommend that. 
This is filled out, um, actually this doesn't have a name because this is a first day in therapy um, survey, uh, but she is between 36 and 50. Uh, what brought you to therapy? I was referred initially when I was going through an addiction program and then a few years later after dealing with depression. I've been taking meds and they were working, but I was still struggling uh, and my doctor suggested CBT. Any fears associated with starting therapy? The usual, I'm a fraud and I don't have real problem stuff. Also that I can't be helped. Also that the therapist would make assumptions about me or my life and that would affect my treatment. Did any of these fears come true? Not with my current therapist. I had dealt with people previously who had made assumptions about me, and that irritated me, and I didn't want to talk to them. What worked best for you in therapy? I really like my therapist. She seems to genuinely care about me. She remembers details about me. I know it's partially due to taking notes, but at least she makes the effort to check them. She lets me be myself and makes jokes, but she calls me out when I'm using... Uh, Oh, she lets me be myself and make jokes, but she calls me out when I'm using humor as a shield for my true feelings. She gets excited when I make progress, even if it's something that seems small that, quote, anyone should be able to do, because she knows that it was really a challenge for me. Uh, first impressions of your therapist. My first impression was that she seemed like a nice person. I felt comfortable. She explained the process and the, quote, terms and conditions and I felt immediately at ease which is not common for me that's that intangible that that when you immediately feel comfortable with someone um, and that's so important it's hugely important and hugely healing um, do you feel like you can be honest with your therapist I do feel like I can be honest I do hold some things back sometimes because I don't feel like I'm ready to get into them but when I do feel that I have the energy to deal with the aftermath of digging up those feelings, I know I can trust her. Any suggestions for a new therapist? Try not to make judgments or assumptions about people. I've had a number of therapists tell me that certain traits are common in, quote, Asian parents when I've talked about my dad, who is a white man, or, quote, immigrant families. Both my parents are fourth-generation Canadians. It makes me mad that they either aren't fully listening to me or are just guessing about my background. Uh, whenever that has happened, I decided not to go back. Well, good for you. That's some great self-advocacy. And there are therapists out there that uh, that aren't good. Um, but it doesn't mean that the art of therapy, the practice of therapy, isn't beneficial. This is uh, the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself this part shouldn't be so hard about her anxiety. Unable to remember people, places, entire seasons because I'm too busy trying to figure out if I've touched or eaten something that's going to kill me. About her OCD, sobbing and screaming uncontrollably because I'm going to con contract an STD after sitting on a slightly damp park bench that was, of course, contaminated with the sperm of countless masturbators. That was my favorite operatic supergroup, was countless masturbators. Oh, man, they, uh, those guys could pack a haul. <laughs> Snapshot from her life. My psychiatrist, who I'd been seeing for a year, asked his routine, how are you? 
uh, question, to which I spent a few minutes trying to answer as accurately and thoroughly as I could. Afterwards, he said, it seems like you're talking to yourself because you're not even looking at me. And he said things like I wasn't, quote, engaging, and he hadn't understood a lot of what I'd said over the year. I didn't say anything at this time, uh, but felt intense pangs of shame and embarrassment as I walked from the office to my car. I dwelt on what I conjectured was his irritation with me, perhaps since I began seeing him and his probable dislike of me. I felt that I had been so deluded and self-absorbed. I knew I had done what my mom had always done, rant on and on, externalizing her anxious ruminations as if the other person was not there. I thought, that's me with him and how many others? I treated him like others I wanted to like me, to love me. I'd felt my, quote, confessional compulsion to make myself known, but he wasn't like the others, and that wasn't what this type of therapy was about. He didn't want to know me, and he didn't like and couldn't love me. He wanted to teach me CBT techniques, and I felt so embarrassed for getting it so wrong and for not being attuned to what he was doing. You know, my two thoughts reading this are that you should either seek another therapist or you should try more sessions with him, but read him this. Print this out and read it to him, or if you can remember what you said, if you're listening, um, let him know how you're feeling. Uh, because that may be a really um, beneficial thread to to start pulling and see where where it leads. Um, this is an email that I got from. Uh, he wants to be uh, referred to as Bob, a mature student in psychology in Montreal, and he writes, "Hi, Paul. Was, Hello, Bob." I was just listening to your most recent podcast, and in response to a listener expressing discomfort with what sounded like a bad therapist, you said that you can't imagine someone going through the process of becoming a psychotherapist without learning the importance of empathy. Unfortunately, I'm seeing this firsthand. In my late 40s, I decided to return to school to study psychology, and I'm entering my final semester next week. My version of a midlife crisis, I guess. A shiny, expensive, sexy new degree rather than a Porsche. What I've been seeing at school, first of all, are mostly smart, kind-hearted young people who want to help others. The school itself is decent, the teaching is good, but the evaluations are terrible. It's memorize all this crap and then barf it out onto usually multiple choice exams. So even with professors who emphasize empathy, compassion, and understanding, when it comes down to evaluations, they're just measuring how well you memorize. We also write papers and give presentations, but those elements typically account for only about 20% of one's grade. To get into a graduate program in clinical psychology, you have to be a straight-A student or close to it. There are many B, B-plus students, myself included, who would make excellent therapists but fall just slightly short of the cutoff, often because the methods of evaluation don't play to our strengths. So I think different types of evaluation might serve psychotherapy better. From my own experience in therapy, I've encountered many therapists who are very knowledgeable in the forms of therapy they practice, but are not good at making that all-important connection with their client. I hope you find this informative, and thanks again for all your work, Bob. Thank you for that. That was uh, incredibly, incredibly uh, illuminating to uh, to read. And yet I cast you to hell, Bob. I just wanted you to be my first person to be cast to the bowels of hell. Enjoy the ride. 
This is uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Ellie or L, and she writes, "I work at an OCD clinic and see myself in almost every client. Though I have my OCD under control for the most part, I sometimes empathize." empathize with their struggles so much that it spills over and I take it on again. My contamination issues, my perfectionism, the intrusive thoughts, and much more rear their ugly heads. However, this not only allows me to deal with my own struggles, but I am better to, to help my clients. We touch toilets. We deal with uncomfortable silence. We leave imperfections all over the office. We share thoughts I have had and still do. Nothing makes me happier than healing together with a client, even if they don't know it. Oh, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. And I want to congratulate you on not only being the first one for the year, but the first one in the history of podcasts to have a beautiful moment involving a toilet. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by So Anxious I Can't Even Pick a Name. And she writes, After panicking all day yesterday about going to a family Christmas party, I went. I used as many coping skills as possible and found myself, as usual, feeling disconnected from the people I grew up with. In my large extended family, most of my cousins in their 20s and 30s have married, own homes, and started having children. Not me, though. I've had a series of failed relationships, had to sell the home I purchased, and feel jealous of the glamorous, maybe more attention-getting, part of having children, even though I know I don't want any myself. So all night long, I do my best to avoid conflict and drank plenty of water to keep me from passing out as I felt so overheated. When I started to think I would never be able to leave, I'd driven over with my parents, I finally saw an escape in sight. My sister was leaving and I hopped a ride uh, with her. She lives a walkable distance from my apartment. We drove home in mostly comfortable silence. She's one of the more calming forces in my life. As I started to walk the block from uh, my place uh, to my place from hers in the damp 70-degree evening, I could see waves of my anxiety passing over me. Yes, literally see them. I kicked off my shoes and started walking barefoot. As I was walking, my body started to be betray me and I peed. All of the water I'd been drinking all night poured out of me. I wanted to cry, but there didn't seem to be any liquid left for that. Thankfully, I'd already taken my shoes off and it was raining easier earlier in the night, so my puddle blended in with all of the others. I should have been embarrassed, but nobody was on the street and it wasn't noticeable, so I just didn't care. When I got home, I took a hot shower, put my clothes into the laundry and went to bed. Truly awfulsome. It's kind of beautiful. We've, <laughs> we've got a beautiful moment involving toilets, followed up by a beautiful moment involving pee. You guys are awesome. And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Blackbird. And she writes, Imagine it is dark outside, but clear and warm. I can hear the wind and the pine trees above me and smell the green and decay in the air. It's almost 10 p.m. and my campers are all asleep, or pretending to be, in their tents. I am 18 and have been working at a summer camp all summer. I'm in a place that I love and away from the people who caused me so much pain. I wait a little longer and t and then tell my co-counselor tell my co-counselor that I am taking my break. I watch fireflies dance along the path as I walk to the lake, walking quickly in anticipation of the time I get to spend with friends. I am tired but wide awake. 
one of the many contradictions of my life uh, that in this instance does not cause pain. An owl calls out in the distance as I start down the hill towards the beach. My friends are already there when I arrive. They've been waiting for me, and in this moment, I feel accepted, like I've finally found a place I'm meant to be. We watch the reflection of the stars on the lake and break the silence with stories from the day. Our voices carry off into the dark. We sing old camp songs and then sit in silence, listening to the water and the wind. I feel at peace, like I am more than all of the bad things I have ever felt. While I lost that feeling of peace a month later when I started college, it is a memory I have carried with me ever since. When I feel the horrible pressure and pain, I try to remember how I felt 10 years ago during the sweetest summer of my life. That even though the painful memories may speak the loudest, the beautiful moments are there too. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And so realistic in... The fact that it's not a light tur- switch turned on in my fifth therapy session and suddenly I had it all figured out and my life was just a big series of dealing gracefully with problems and uh, not ever feeling pain again. Um, so thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, before I forget... I uh, want to remind you guys who are in Oakland slash uh, San Francisco that I'm coming to do a live taping of the podcast at the Uptown Nightclub on Thursday night, uh, January 21st. My guest guest is uh, a very funny uh, comedian and writer, Guy Branham. Um, you can get tickets. Uh, I'll put the link up on the, the website uh, for this episode, uh, but tickets are available. They'll be uh, 15 in advance, 20 at the door, and um, I think you can also get them just go, uh, by going to uptownnightclub.com. Uh, that link might be wrong, so uh, to be on the safe side, just do it through our website. But anyway, thank you guys um, for all your support last year, and... Um, Yeah, like I said, try to remember to be good to yourself this year. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck and hopeless and alone, um, just remember that you are not. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.